Well, good morning, everybody. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Uh, my name is Ben Lose. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, maybe you're visiting with family today. Maybe it's your first time at Grace Chapel. I'm sure that's the case for some of you. Let me add the, my welcome to the one you just received. I'm so glad you're worshiping with us this Easter morning. I want to begin, um, before we read the scripture text, I just want you to bring something to your mind. What has been, what have you been worrying about lately? What has been consuming your thoughts? What has been owning your life? What in life has been like the bully that has been taking your lunch money? You bring it to your mind? Is it there? Let me read these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all things are yours. And you, dear ones, are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you visit us this morning? Reading uh, very early this morning those resurrection accounts where people would come to the tomb and they wouldn't see right away what they were supposed to see, but it took a while for the light of Christ to dawn upon them. And often it was something very tender that you would do. You would speak a name, Mary, and then she would see. Or you would sit down at a table with people and break bread and then they would know that it was you. Or even with Thomas, you would allow him to put the hands, his hands in your wounds. In each case, they needed a special word from you, a touch, a moment to see you. And we need that. We need you to come by your spirit and speak our name and to break bread with us this morning and to open our eyes again so that the light of the resurrection would dawn upon our hearts and our minds in Christ. And so we ask for it, Lord. Give us sight to see, the eyes to see, the ears to hear again that he is risen. Come, just come. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. The events that surround the resurrection are the foundation of all Christian hope. You can think of hope as if it's standing on anything, our hope, our joy, it stands on the foundation of the resurrection. On the one hand, in the resurrection, we look backwards to the cross and to all that Christ accomplished there. 
and you can think of the resurrection as the Father's seal of approval on Christ's life and His sacrifice. The resurrection is the Father's yes and amen to everything that Jesus did. Kids, I thought about this for you for an illustration of this. It's kind of like when you're texting somebody and like you put a little heart tap back or like the thumbs up on the text. If Christ's life was a text, the resurrection is the little heart emoji or thumbs up icon from the Father. It is the thing that reveals the Father's satisfaction with the Savior's sacrifice for our sins. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that His sacrifice was sufficient. It is a public demonstration by the Father to say yes. Salvation has been secured on the cross. Forgiveness of sins is assured to us in the resurrection, Christ's death is not in vain. And so in Romans 4 it says, He was delivered over to death for our sins, but then gets this, and was raised to life for our justification. You hear that, for our justification, that you might know that you are justified. And in 1 Corinthians 15 it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What's the implication? That if Christ has been raised, your faith is fruitful. And you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have been forgiven. Easter is about celebrating the Father's satisfaction. His delight in the Son's sacrifice for each and every one of our sins. So that we can cherish everything that He's purchased for us on the cross. Amen? And yet the resurrection isn't just about looking back at the cross. It's also about looking forward to a day when each of us in Christ will pass from death to life. And then later, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment at the last trumpet, we will be made new. Jesus' resurrection, as much as it's a vindication of his life and sacrifice, it's also a preview of our future, a preview of what will happen to us. Romans 6 says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, what are first fruits? Well, they're the first thing out of the garden. They're the first fruit off the vine. It's the first apple off the tree. It's the proof of the quality and the content of the coming harvest. So in the first fruits, you get an actual taste of the future. Oh, the apples are going to be good this year. And in the scriptures, we're told that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first breaker in a coming tidal wave 
of immortality. Ever stand in the ocean and you feel one wave come to you and from the force of it you're like, oh, there's a bigger one coming. You better get ready. The first breaker in a tidal wave of immortality, of a deathless kind of life. And the scripture says it all happens in order. It comes in stages. First, Christ was resurrection and the power of the future broke into our world. And after that, Christ will come again and then all who belong to him will rise. The bullies may be taking your lunch money right now, but have no doubt about it, we will rise. Christ's resurrection, the foundation of our hope, it is on the one hand the proof of God's love for us and all that has been accomplished for us in Jesus. And on the other hand, it is a foretaste of glory, a vision of our future. It's hard to explain the impact of such a message on a human life, on a human soul, if you really got it. What would it mean for a person to know with utter certainty the love and commitment of their God? What would it be like for a person to know in their bones that nothing in creation would be able to separate that person from God's love for them or God's good purpose for them to make them new? How does one talk about such a thing? Paul, in 1 Corinthians, spends chapter 15, like 60-some verses, trying to get this across. And I could have preached on that, but then I would have had to read the whole thing, and that would have shrunken my time to preach, and I like to preach on Easter. (laughs) And so then I I just went, so that's his like long form. This is what the resurrection is all about. But at the beginning of the book, he tweets. He he puts it in just a couple sentences. And so that's what I chose. He communicates the impact of the resurrection by saying something as crazy as this. All things are yours. Whether the world or life or death or the present moment or whatever lies in your future. All things are yours because you are Christ and because Christ is is God's. So I'd just like to take a few moments to think about what it means that all things are yours and mine in Christ. And uh, to, to, to get into that, I think we have to know about these individuals it talks about here. It says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. And I think by seeing what he's saying about Paul and Apollos and Cephas, we'll be able then to see what he's saying about life and death and the present or the future. Well, who were Paul and Apollos and Cephas? They were teachers who had come to the the church in Corinth. Each of them had taught at different times and baptized different people. But these were the rising stars 
of the early church. Celebrity pastors aren't just a thing of today. (laughs) They were in the first century as well. And people began, instead of celebrating the joy of all the wonderful teaching that they had, they began to select their favorite teachers and then get into these little camps. Not that we do that today. (laughs) Some liked Paul, but they couldn't care less about Apollos. And some liked Apollos and dismissed everything Paul had to say. Still others preferred Peter's teaching. And then there was a super spiritual group who only liked the red letter parts of the Bible, the teachings of Jesus. But Paul said, man, this kind of tribalistic thinking, it has to stop. It's dividing the church. It's destroying the church. And so he spends the first three chapters of the the letter to the Corinthians trying to clean up that mess. And what we're reading is the end of that argument where he says, don't boast in men. Why? Because all of their teaching belongs to you. They are not your masters to be followed. They are your servants given to you by God For your benefit. This is what he says just before our text. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who planted nor he who watered is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, speaking of those teachers. You are God's field, his his building. So what's he saying there? He's saying the teachers, he's saying we're not the big deal, you are. We are servants of God. God's emissaries, ultimately through our teaching, to bring you to glory. We are not your masters trying to find disciples. We are your servants, given to you for your benefit. That God had provided Paul and Apollos and Peter for the benefit of the whole church. And so what's interesting about this is Paul kind of turns everything around. In the first chapter, the people are saying, I follow or I belong to Peter or Apollos or Cephas. And Paul says, no, we belong to you. We belong to the church. All three were given to bless and build up the church. And so now stick with me because this is where it's going to hit. So when Paul says these men are yours, it's not in the sense of ownership or control but in the sense of service and blessing. That God is behind the giving of these men, and they are ultimately gifts given to us by God to ultimately serve us and to be our teachers on the road to glory. But then Paul does something amazing. He draws an analogy from these teachers and says they're not the only things in your life that function that way. In fact, everything in your life functions in that way. 
This is how we should view everything in our life. Every event, every beauty, every sorrow, every hardship, every joy, like so many teachers and tutors there to help us on the way to glory. All things are yours, not in the sense of ownership or control but in the sense of them ultimately being your servants to bless you, to build you up, gifts given to you by God to serve us on the road to glory. And then he breaks down what he means by all things into five words. The world, life, death, the present, and the future. Which kind of sums up all things. And Gordon Fee, the great commentator, describes those five items as the five tyrannies of human existence. And if we think about it, he's right. All of these things have the ability to paralyze us and frighten us. But what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us this Easter morning is that these things do not own us. They belong to us, and in Christ, they will ultimately serve us. So how does that work? Well, let's just take them one by one, and let's start with death, because it's dead, and it's Easter. (laughs) Death is our enemy It has taken much from us. The cause of so much heartache and grief and loss and sorrow. And yet in Jesus, death has lost its ultimate sting. Yes, we grieve all that death has stolen from us, but with profound hope. We cry our tears. We, we, we bellow at the grave, but we no longer fear it because death has been defeated. He is risen. So Paul later on in Corinthians will say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Death, which was once so much an item of concern, has become for you and me but a gateway home. To Jesus. Oh, death, where is your sting? It's on Golgotha's empty cross. Death, where is your victory? In the empty grave outside Jerusalem. Then what are you, death? It answers, I am but your servant. I serve you while you live to make you wise. I serve you while you live to make you serious and fruitful. And I serve you when you die to bring you home to glory. 
Death does not own you. I belong to you, says death. I am but your servant. How about the future? What worries you about your future? What does the future hold? What are you going to do? (laughs) What should you do? The unknown, right? It can paralyze us with so much fear. And if you've lived any years at all, you know that you can plot out your future. You can imagine what your future is going to look like. It ain't going to look like that. You can't plan that out. (laughs) The script changes. Heartache comes. The unexpected happens. And there's nothing you can do about it. I have no idea what the future holds for you and me. But this I do know. God holds the future. And God knows the future. He is sovereign over the future. And His plans will come to fruition in the future just like they have in the past. The future is yours, my friend, because the future belongs to Him. And so we need not fear. Because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. All things are not good. But God promises that all things will work together for good. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And what that means is that nothing can come to you in the future. Nothing ten seconds from or 10 days from now or 10 months from now or 10 years from now or 10 decades from now or 10 centuries from now or 10 millennias from now or 10 ages of millennias. Nothing can come to you that will hinder God's purpose in your life. There is no suffering that cannot and will not ultimately be bent into serving Your ultimate good. Made like Him, like Him we rise. We have seen the future. And the future is Jesus. Made like Him, like Him we rise. You have seen the future and the future is bright. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. You will be kings, queens, and priests in that kingdom. You will judge the angels, whatever that means. You will have bodies like Jesus' glorious bodies. You will be a temple, or a pillar in the temple of your God. God will be your God and walk with you, his friend, and his child forever. The future does not own you. It belongs to you and serves you. He says the present is yours. You don't have to wait for the, some future time for things to be working for your good. They are serving you now. The moment that you are in right now. That every moment in your life is a stroke of the divine brush on the canvas of the final masterpiece that is called you and your life. 
Every moment, the sad moments, the happy moments, the fearful moments, the bold moments, the lonely moments, the grieving moments, the sleeping moments, all the moments, the present is yours. You are not a slave to time, chance, or a sequence of random events. They do not own you. They serve you. They are God's emissaries to you to bring you to glory. All of life, it says, is yours. Every breath you take, every beat of the heart, every chemical transaction in the body, every night you sleep, Every moment you make, every word, every deed, every accomplishment, failed or successful, every emotion that rises, everything you tweet, everything you read, every conversation, all of it, your life is yours. You don't belong to it. It belongs to you. And goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Finally, he says, the world is yours. And by this, he does not mean the earth. The world in 1 Corinthians always has negative connotations. It's the world in rebellion against God. It's the foolish wisdom of the world. And so what it's saying is that even the most rebellious things, war, sorrow, unbelief, murder, violence, these things are not your master. These things will not ultimately own you. But from the, the most beneficial beauties to the most malignant cancers... And evil things. Everything in this world is working together. Ultimately, for our greatest and longest good. How can this be? Because you are Christ's. And because Christ is God's. You are Christ's. You belong to Him. You have been united to Him by faith. You belong to Him in the way that a hand belongs to the body, in the way that a bride belongs to a husband. How do you know you are Christ? We know it because of the testimony of the Spirit within us. So this is Romans 8, 14-17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then listen to this. And if children, then heirs. All things are yours. All things are yours because you are Christ's heir. And why does belonging to Christ 
make all things yours because Christ is God's. God loves Christ. Christ is God. They are one. And all that God the Father is or can be or can do for one like Christ, He is and does for Christ. And because you are Christ's, all the Father is or can be or can do for a creature, He is and does for you because you are Christ's. There is a hymn we sing on Easter Sunday that says, Made like Him, like Him we rise. And the last line is this. Ours the cross, the grave, the skies. Ours the cross, the graves, the skies. It's almost like the hymn writer is meditating on our verse today, saying the crosses, the graves, they're mine. All they do is help me. They are not my enemies anymore. He's saying, come on, crosses. Come on, graves. The lower you lay me, the higher you will raise me. Because I am in Christ. In Christ is God's. Jesus is not an idea. He is not a distant notion. He is not poetic fancy. He is not an abstraction. He is not a teacher. He is not your authentic self. He is the first, the last, and the living one, and He is risen, and that changes everything. He is with us always. He is alive forever and ever. And I say that with a note of defiance in my voice because it's been a long year. And for many of us, we've we've walked a long road of suffering and disappointment to get here this Easter morning. Suffering in our minds with doubts and confusion. Suffering with mental illness. Suffering with addiction. Suffering in our bodies. We've seen our children's bodies suffer with disfigurement and disease. We've suffered with our sins, our pride, our shame, our deceit. We've suffered in our families when things we've long hoped for haven't come with discouragement and divorce and death. Some of you have buried a loved one this year. We've suffered as a church with loss, many hurtful things. We've suffered as a world with disease and terrorism and what seems like ceaseless war. And yet, here you are. And here I am. All this suffering gathered up in the world and yet you gathered here today to bear witness not to the power of suffering, but to the power of suffering's end. That's what you did today, whether you knew it or not. And there's a part of us that doubts the greatness of the victory that Jesus won in his resurrection from the dead. And to that part of us, we say today, along with the great Catholic poet, Gerald Manley Hopkins, let him Easter in us today. Let him be a day spring to the dimness in us today. 
Because all things are yours. The world. Life. Death. The present. And the future. All things are yours. Because you are Christ's. And because Christ is God's. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that all things are ours in Jesus. Thank you so much for the resurrection and for Easter morning. May it Easter in us this message. May it be a light to the dimness in our lives this morning. May you fill us with hope, a renewed sense of what it means that we belong to Christ. Lord, would you help us carry the burdens in our hearts? the fears and uncertainties, the worries this morning, and would we be able to plunge them into the ground, the the, the rich soil of resurrection life. We give you thanks and praise because of who you are and the victory that you've won on our behalf. And we say, mingle with us by our spirit this morning. Throughout the day, as we gather with our families, as we bring to mind what it means that he's risen. Would you strengthen us in like the deep parts? We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.